0: This morning if you are a guest with us on this rather cold day, imagine some or or somebody told me their daughter looked out the window this morning and said, Dad, it feels like 13, I think we need to stay home. I don't know if anybody gets tempted with that, I know I do, but I needed to come today, (laughs) so I put my coat on and we made it, Um, but it's good to be here, and this morning, uh, if you are a guest with us, I would invite you to take a guest card there at the back of the pew in front, or pew, wow, did I just say pew? Wow, where would that come from? That's a creature of habit, that's just, what in the world? What's a pew? Anyway, so yesterday. Okay, anyway. All right, so anyway, if, if, you'll t- <laughs> if you'll take the guest card there back in the chair in front of you, that'd be awesome. If you're a guest with us, love that you're here, and, and at the end of the service, we're going to come together and observe communion together. Um, and uh, there's also plates up here and also in the back, and we'd love for you to place that guest card there uh, in the plate uh, as, uh, during that time today or as you leave today. We'd love for you to do that. Um, Our heart and desire for going through this book, this beautiful gospel, the gospel of Luke, is that that we truly would treasure Jesus, That, that our heart would find Jesus as our delight, that he would be the prize of our life, that he would be the one that we value greatly over anything or anyone else. I think that was Luke's heart. And as Luke tells us that the story of Jesus, and that's what he's doing, he's telling these exacting truths about the, the story of Jesus, because he wants to, us to behold him as, as we're going to see this morning, as the Son of God. And so this morning, I, I just want to begin there, if we could. I, I, just in verse 21, I want to cover some ground here, but I, but I want us to truly walk away and behold Jesus as the Son of God. Because that's who he is. And so, Jesus, we're going to see this morning. I want to give you three overriding points to direct our time today that Jesus, the Son of God, is announced and approved. We're going to see that here in the beginning. That Jesus, the Son of God, is a new and second Adam, a very unique look. Um, and then, Jesus is the Son of God, attacked and victorious. And so we'll see that in the text as we walk through it. But as we first see that Jesus is the Son of God, he's announced as the Son of God. He's approved as the Son of God. And we see that here in verse 21. It's an interesting scene. And so look what begins here. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And so if you remember from last week, John the Baptist is in the wilderness. Last time we saw John, was, he was uh, leaping in his mother's womb. He was then born, and here was this man who was full of the Holy Spirit, uh, even as a young boy, even in the womb of his mom. And here he is 30 years later in the wilderness, and he begins his ministry. And he came preaching and baptizing. His preaching and his baptism was about a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so people would come, and as God would convict and stir their hearts with conviction over sin, God would begin to change and work in their lives and transform them. They would respond to John's preaching and be baptized, To show and to express that, hey, I'm following God, I'm dependent on God, and I'm trusting in Him for the forgiveness of sins. And so John was doing that as he was pointing to one who was coming Jesus. He was the preparer, he was the forerunner for Jesus. And so John's ministry, and so as we pick up this week in verse 21, it says, As they were being baptized, who are they that are being baptized? It's those who were responding to the ministry of John there at the Jordan River as John is preaching, and all of a sudden, who's in line? Who walks up? It's Jesus. Now, if you're John, you're like, whoa, 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 hold the boat. I'm preaching against wickedness. I'm preaching against sin, and I'm telling everybody to repent and hear who is one who has no wickedness in him whatsoever who's holy, who's from heaven. And here he is in the flesh. And he's come to be baptized. And that's why in the Gospel of Matthew, John is like, hey, and even in this Gospel, I'm not worthy to even untie this guy's sandals. I'm not worthy. And he even says in Matthew, I, I'm not going to baptize you, Jesus. <laughs> that wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be right. We'll talk more about that in a second, but but this is a beautiful scene. So imagine this, imagine this. Here, here is Jesus. And it's like on the day that you got baptized. Can you imagine that here you are and you're with a group of people or maybe it's just you getting baptized on that day and there's Jesus standing behind you and he's like, yeah, I'm coming to get baptized. And that's what it was like. And so here is Jesus coming to get baptized. And so when's the last time we saw Jesus? Well, in Luke's gospel in chapter one, we hear that Jesus is 12. He's in the temple. He's among those. He's, he's teaching And as this young middle school student, right? And so Jesus grew, we're told, in Luke 1, 52, in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and with men. And he continued to do that. And here he is. We're going to learn in just a second. He's now 30. And so he has lived this perfect, sinless life, right? He went through the teenage years. And he went through 20. He, he hung out with his dad, probably. He worked with his dad. He hung out with his siblings. We knew he had brothers and he had sisters. And so here he is now, and he's on the scene. He's going to be baptized. Now, I read this, and I'm like, okay, God, I've got a question. Why is Jesus being baptized, right? Why is he being baptized? I mean, I understand these other people. I, I get that. But why Jesus why is he being baptized? And so a few maybe answers to that to kind of help us from Scripture. So, so I gave just six, if we could, real quick, real quick. One, I think simply to be right, right? In Matthew chapter 3, listen to what the Scripture tells us in verse 16. Jesus told John, because John was like, hey, hold, hold the boat here, dude. I'll, I'll baptize all these people, but you, mm I'm not worthy to do that. You're God. You're the one I came to point people to. You're the Messiah, right? And so Jesus says, though, listen to verse 16 of Matthew 3, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was baptized because it was fitting for him to do everything right, to obey God's will. This was God's will. This was God's plan. And Jesus' life was all about doing the will of God, and so Jesus did this. The second reason I think we find as well is to endorse and affirm or to validate the ministry of John. John's ministry was a ministry uh, focused on repentance, turning from sin and trusting in God and pointing people ultimately to Jesus For the forgiveness of sins and so jesus wanted to endorse he wanted to affirm the ministry of john and then third i think real simply to identify to identify jesus wanted to identify himself with who the upper class everybody who had it together no Jesus came to identify with with who? The rebels, the sinners, the poor, the weak, the sick, the outcast, the prostitutes. That's who he came to identify himself with. Why? Because he came to save them. That's why in Romans chapter six, verse verse four, Paul says, therefore we have been buried with Jesus through baptism into death, the spiritual baptism that comes by faith, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. He came to dwell among us who are hopeless, who don't have it all figured out, so that he could save us, to identify with us, and so forth, to model I think simply to model, to show us how we're to get baptized, how we're to follow the will of God. you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 19? He says, hey, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples in all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So here Jesus is modeling that, and we're to follow in what he did as we identify with him. And then, I think lastly, to be pronounced. It was a custom that, that kings or people who would be inaugurated as the ruler, the leader, that sometimes they would go through this ceremonial cleansing, or they would go through this time of anointing. And so I think what we find right here is this is the inauguration. inauguration. This is the pronouncement that Jesus is the king of kings. And so we have that here as he begins his ministry. But what's most unique is he's being baptized. It also says what? Look at verse 21. It says he was what? He was praying as well. Now, I don't know what this looked like as he was praying, but I can imagine he's either praying in his mind or his heart as he's being baptized or maybe praying verbally as well. But he's praying, and then as he prays, and Luke mentions that many times throughout this gospel about Jesus praying to the Father. He's also, we also see in the scene something else happening. What is it? Heaven does what? Heaven opens up. Anyone seen that recently? Heaven opening up? I haven't. I mean, well, some of you might be like, yeah, man, I've, I've seen it in different ways. God revealing himself. Because that's what it means. God revealing himself. And he's going to do it in the most special and unique way in this moment. And so this is big. I mean, for heaven to open up, it's big. It's huge. Right? And that's what happens here And what happens is God is going to reveal visibly and verbally who he is with this beautiful picture. And what does he give us a picture of? The Trinity, the triune God. Now there's a message in it, there's a purpose in it, but it's also a beautiful picture of God. This is who God is. He reveals himself. And so how do we see God revealed in this text? It says the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Okay, that's a kind of a unique phrase there the holy spirit descended in bodily form like a dove if you were to ask me jerry what what is that what does that mean and i don't know i don't know what that's pictured like all i know is that's what the the passage says right but the holy spirit comes descends in bodily form like a dove and then the father his voice comes out of heaven and says you are my beloved son and whom I am well pleased with. So you have Jesus, the eternal son of God, standing there, being baptized, praying, ho- heaven opening up. And so Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, eternal son of God, right there in the flesh. And then you have the Holy Spirit, in bodily form, descending like a dove upon Jesus. Many call this a theophany. It says God is manifesting himself in bodily form and here like A dove. Now, what does this mean? What could this maybe mean? Where else do we see a dove in Scripture? In the day of Noah, right? There were some birds. Remember, raven, a dove. Remember the dove. The dove went out, and the whole goal of the dove was that the dove would uh, eventually not come back. And the dove didn't come back. Why? Because the earth had been cleansed. The earth had been renewed. It was a new earth, and so. Many believe that that maybe is possibly the picture here, that that Jesus is a greater Noah, one who will bring a new earth. He brings a cleansing. He brings redemption to us. He brings change to our hearts. Also, when you think of a dove, it's a symbol of what? It's a symbol of peace, a bird that is not a predatory bird. So picturing peace is the idea here, and that's offered to us, to sinners who are at war with God. Now, Jesus is that peace offering. And he brings peace to our hearts and to our lives. And then maybe even this. I love this text. In Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 4, it will be up on the screen. If I could just read it to you. It says, Behold my servant. Let me get to it. Whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. And so this is a picture of God speaking of his his servant, the Messiah, the the son of God. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And so there's this beautiful picture of the Spirit of God coming upon the Messiah. And he will, like a dove, right? He will not break a reed. He will come instead bringing justice. He will come in power, but how? With tenderness, with mercy, and with love like a dove, to bring peace, to bring justice. So we have this beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit, but I want you to see here, too, that this is not Jesus receiving the Spirit of God here. Can I I make that clear? I, I don't want us to think that up until this point, Jesus did not have the Spirit of God. Remember, he is God, okay? And how does one live 30 years without sinning, resisting temptation, growing in stature and wisdom in the favor of God as we see in the beginning of Luke it doesn't happen so he has the spirit of God now some will teach remember when we went through 1 John some will teach that this is when Jesus receives the spirit of Messiah or the spirit of God that is not true Okay, that is a falsehood that is a luring a, a fog of falsehood that the enemy would love for us to buy into Okay? But that's not true, and some will, will believe that. And Jesus is God. He is filled with the Spirit of God. But here, this text simply says, in bodily form, the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon him like a dove. And so this isn't, though, him receiving the Spirit of God. Okay? Um, thirdly, who do we see? We see the Father, right? We see the Father, and how do we see the Father? His voice from heaven. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's amazing enough that Jesus is right there, right? And and obviously, not everybody knows who he is. John has an idea, right? But here, heaven has opened up, the Holy Spirit in bodily form, and now this voice, and this voice settles any questions in that moment about who Jesus is as he, the Father, speaks and declares, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and so I think this is a green light. This is a green light for Jesus, a powerful enablement, a directive for him and his beginning public ministry. So Jesus is announced. He's approved as the son of God. And this marks the beginning of his ministry, as we see here. And Luke speaks of what his ministry will be based on, who he is as the one-of-a-kind son of God. And he does it through, most uniquely, look how he's going to pronounce this even further. Look in verse 23, with a genealogy. You might be thinking, why in the world, Luke, do you include a genealogy here? Well, Matthew did it, so I wonder if Luke was like, hey, I want to get a shot at it, but I'm going to do it a little different, and I think purposefully as well. well look at verse 23. We're not going to read the whole thing, so some of you guys that, as when I said that in your uh, heart, skipped the beat, and you thought for a second, oh, no, are we really going to do what we did in Nehemiah and read the whole thing? Many of you weren't here. Some of you might be blessed for that. I don't know, uh, but probably not. You need to go back and listen to it. Great sermon on the genealogy of Nehemiah. Anyway, just kidding. All right, verse 23. Listen to what it says here. As we see Jesus, the son of God, as a new and second Adam. So there's a purpose to this, a beautiful picture that I think Luke is painting as Jesus begins his ministry and what his ministry is about based on who he is. And so it says in verse 23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. And then dot, 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 and go with me. You'll enjoy those dots, but go with me to verse 38. It says then, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay? So Luke shares this genealogy to speak of Jesus' ministry, and this genealogy speaks. Now, there's a lot of things that this genealogy says, but here's one I want you to get the main picture of. Is that Luke's genealogy goes back to Adam, right? Where did Matthew go back to? Do you remember? Abraham, okay? I know that's not like something that we're all constantly <laughs> thinking about, but it goes back to, to Abraham. And so Adam here is referred to uh, here as um, a son of God. Okay? Not in the sense of Jesus. Jesus, capital S, Son of God. Adam, here at the end of verse 38, lowercase, Son of God. And so, though not identical, there is a comparison, no doubt, to Adam and Jesus. And since Luke spent, uh, and, and so in, in, in Luke spent a lot of time with who? Do you remember? Who is his companion in ministry? It's kind of popular in the New Testament. Paul, thank you. All right, just... Thought you guys might want to chime in on that. So he spent some time with Paul. And so no doubt as, as, as this genealogy, I, I think what we learn from is that maybe Luke and Paul talked about this. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians and also in Romans talks about Adam. And talks about him in, in a couple of ways. And so this calls to mind that as Jesus as what? A, a second Adam. Uh, Adam was created to begin humanity. Jesus is the beginner of a new humanity, right? And so think of 1 Corinthians 15. It'll be up on the screen, 47 through 49. It says the first man is from the earth, earthy, right? And that'd be interesting. I'm, I'm Jerry. I'm earthy, okay? <laughs> I mean, that's, just use that, okay? Um, but you don't want to stay earthy according to this verse, okay? The second man is from heaven. Who's the second man? Jesus, okay? As is the earthy, okay, so also are those who are earthy. Now, when you think about that, what does that mean? What what did Adam bring into the earth? Thank you, Adam. Sin, right? Sin entered into the earth, we're told. That's what Paul tells us. And so, as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Who are the heavenly? Those who are citizens of heaven. Those who have trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. They've been redeemed, and they belong to him as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And so, just as we have borne the image of the earth, the all of us have, we will, those who have been saved, also bear the image of the heavenly. And so, as Paul is talking about that, he's comparing the old Adam with now the new The second Adam, which is Jesus. And so Jesus is a new and second Adam whose ministry will be to create and to assemble a new race of humans, a a new people who are not marked by Jewishness or non-Jewishness, but those who have repented, been forgiven of their sins and have this dove-like character of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has. And so Adam is directly Created by God, He's the head from which we all came. All of our genealogies begin with Him. But He was tempted, and He what? He failed, and through Him sin entered the earth. But Jesus, Jesus, He creates. In fact, He's the Creator, and He redeems the creation as Savior. He was tempted, as we're going to see, but he does not fail, as Adam did. And so he's this new, he's this second Adam, and he enters this battle, this new battle to redeem, to redeem a new people, and that's us. And so I think Luke paints this picture. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is this new Adam. Adam. To make a new people for himself and that's what john's been pointing to and he's going to do that as he redeems them and so i love this picture that jesus comes on the front lines he battles for you and he's not going to let us down right like adam did in the garden but he comes and he will not fail and how does he do that well look at the third and final point today it says jesus is attacked right But he's victorious when he's attacked. Look what happens in verse one, two. Jesus is now full of the Holy Spirit, it says, returned from the Jordan. It was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for how many days? 40 days, being tempted by the devil. I think that's important. Growing up, I always had this in my mind, and I don't know when God changed it, but I I always had this in my mind when I read this text that Jesus was not eating in, in the wilderness, which he wasn't. He was there for 40 days, and then, the enemy came and started tempting him, right? That's not the case. While he's there for 40 days, he's being tempted. So that's an important phrase right there, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And so here Jesus goes from the Jordan. Now Luke shows him going to the wilderness where he is alone. He was led there by the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Spirit of God, and he's there for 40 days, not having anything to eat, and he's tempted by the devil. And as he's there, I want you to think of, of just a couple verses. okay? Jesus, in John 4, 34, do you remember what he says? He says, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, the will of the Father, and to accomplish his work. And so as Jesus is in the wilderness, as he's in this time of solitude, right? He eats nothing. But remember, his food is to do what? The will of the Father. And he's full of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18. Do you remember Ephesians 5.18 tells us? It says, Do not get drunk with what? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is what dissipation. It's wasteful living. It's wastefulness to spend a life being being drunk on whatever. But specifically in that case with wine. And he says, But instead be filled with the Holy Spirit and so what we see here Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit what what does that mean it means that he was dependent on God he was enslaved to nothing else but to the Father's will and so we we see that we see that pictured here in the wilderness but that was his life and so he's in the wilderness and he's being tempted there's three temptations we see here the first one, look at verse three. The devil says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become what? To become bread. So the first of three tests that Jesus has faced. If Jesus fails, he's like who? He's like the old Adam. But if he succeeds, he will see what? A new people freed. A people who will learn how to do battle with the enemy through Christ and escape the lure and the fog of faucets. That's what Jesus shows us. And so all three tests entice Jesus to do what? To abandon dependence and trust on God. So the first temptation is that Jesus would gratify self. And so our well-being is not dependent primarily on food and on physical provisions, okay? It's not bad to eat, obviously. But above all, dependence and obedience to God's will, just as it was for Jesus, is God's heart for us. And so... How does he defend himself? How, how is Jesus on the defense here? So with the word of God, Jesus succeeds, right? Using the word of God in verse four, says, he says to the devil or answers him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That comes from Deuteronomy 8.3, and the rest of it we see it in other places is instead we should what? Live on everything that proceeds out of the, 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 the mouth of God. We should live on the word of God. That's where we get our sustenance from, for life and for godliness. And that's how we defend ourselves against the battle of temptation. And so look at 5 through 8, the second temptation we see here. He led him, the enemy did, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. For it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. This is a temptation to exalt self. This is an attempt to get Jesus to do what? To forget who he is. To forget his identity. And then, isn't that what Jesus does, to, or not Jesus, isn't that what the enemy does to us? He tempts us to forget who we are in Jesus Christ, those who are saved. That's what he does. He wants us to forget that we're a child of God. And so he does that to us, and he does that, at least the enemy does, to Jesus in this case. Jesus is the Son of God. He came to serve and to worship God alone. What's interesting about this temptation, I I think this is the prosperity gospel, is this. I think that's the prosperity gospel. That's why I think the prosperity gospel does one thing. It sends people to hell. And that's what you have right here. That's what the enemy does. Okay? And he tried to tempt Jesus with it. But Jesus is on the defense. In Deuteronomy 6.13, he uses the word of God. He says, it is written that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Jesus' desire was to do what? To worship the Father. That was his heart. And then look at verse 9 through 12. The last, the final temptation. He led him to Jerusalem. Had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I think what Satan does here is he tempts Jesus to glorify himself. See, Satan was tempting Jesus to put on quite a spectacle, quite a show here. Instead of trying to push God's hand, though, what does Jesus do? Instead of putting God to the test... Jesus commends himself simply to following God's will and word. And that's what he wants for us. Just to simply follow his will. Simply to follow his word. And so again, on the defense, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.15. And he says that it is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know what God wants for you and I? Just real simple. He just wants us to obey him. That's it. To obey his word, to obey his will. Yet the enemy tempts us otherwise. Now, I want you to think about this. This is an interesting thought. What was Satan's one call? What was his one goal in the wilderness? I think we could maybe answer that in different ways. It'd be a great discussion, right? Maybe over a latte or whatever. But, but what does he do here? The, Satan's goal is to keep Jesus from suffering. That's his goal. And I say, what? i never thought about it that way. But that's his goal. Think about this. Jesus has Peter come up to him, and Jesus has just shared with his disciples, hey guys, I'm, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to suffer many sufferings at the hand of many people. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. On the third day, I'm going to raise again. You remember what G, uh, Peter said to him in Matthew 16? Verse 22 through 23, Peter said to Jesus, God forbid it, Lord. That you would suffer and die, right? This shall never happen to you. But you remember what Jesus turned and said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's interest. And so why do you think the enemy would seek to cause Jesus not to suffer? Because if Jesus doesn't suffer, there's no cross. But the suffering of Jesus is the final destruction of the enemy. And our salvation. And Satan wants neither. And so if he can get Jesus to not suffer, then he wins. But Jesus, as it says in Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus came not to be served, right? But to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's why I came. Like Jordan read earlier in Isaiah 53, that was God's plan, that he would be the suffering servant. Yet the enemy doesn't want that. Jesus is victorious. Verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. In verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So he's full, he's led, he's empowered. And news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. So as we think about Jesus being the son of God and all that he went through, from his baptism as the second Adam who comes to create a new people, to redeem them, and he shows us as he enters the front lines with us and battles for us, he shows us how he's going to battle with us and how he's going to show us how we can win and be victorious in life by obeying God and being dependent on him. I want us just, as we close and wrap up, I want us just, can I just give you three applications to walk away with real quick? The first one is this, that we, we've got to be identified with Jesus. That's our only hope, to be identified with Jesus. You might be saying, okay, well, what, what does that mean? Well, Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants us to think that we're all okay when we're not, right? Um. He wants us to try to work our way to heaven when we can't. He wants us to try to be good enough to earn the righteousness of God when we don't have a chance. And he wants us to remain in Adam, stuck in our sin to face the penalty of, of our sin, which is hell. But Jesus, he doesn't want that. He wants us to recognize that we're not okay. That we're sinners who can't earn our way to heaven. That we are not right. That only God makes us right through his son. And that we need Jesus to turn us, to turn our life around from whatever else we're trusting in. To come and trust in him. That we would have eternal life. And so by faith we become identified with him. The Bible says in John 1.12 that those who believe in him become what? Children of God so that we would trust in him, repent. Just as John came preaching, Jesus affirmed that. And that we would be baptized as well. That's what baptism is. Baptism is us who have been changed. We've been changed on the inside. We've repented. We've had that spiritual baptism. We've experienced faith in Christ. He's changed us to newness of life. And now we, as Jesus was baptized, we go before a public people just as he did and we say, hey, listen, I now am a child of God. And we're baptized just as he is. That's what it means to be identified with Jesus. I pray you are today. If you're not, be identified. Because guess what? G- Satan doesn't want you to be identified with Jesus. He wants you to have nothing to do with the Son of God. That's his goal. Second, be in the wilderness each day. Some of you might be in here, and I don't want to be in the wilderness yet. Some of you guys in here, some of you hunting guys, are like, I can't. Okay, I'll take that. We tell my wife that I'll be in the wilderness each day. <laughs> Be in the wilderness each day. God wants you to experience the wilderness like Jesus did. And what do I mean by that? To be purposeful in solitude. We live in a world full of technology. We have our phones up to our face all the stinking time. I mean, don't we? When do we take a break? And so God wants us to pause. Psalm 46, to be still, verse 10, and know that he is God and that he will be exalted among the nations. Mainly what that means, he's God, I'm not. That's who he is. And we've got to be reminded that solitude does that. Satan wants to keep us busy and distracted because he would love to lure in the fog of falsehood and cause us to drift. That's what he wants to do. That's his goal. He would love to cause us to hinder from living a life that is denying self, following Jesus, and making disciples. That would be his great goal in love cause us to drift from such a life. Um, so solitude, what, what is, why do we need solitude as well? It's because if, if we're going to invest in others, if we're going to disciple others, we need solitude. John Piper says this, he says, the depth and value of what you bring in your heart to other people will depend on what you do with your solitude. What do you have to offer other people on behalf of the Lord? Well, it depends on what you do with your solitude. Solitude. So solitude's not the same as isolation, though. I think we go through different types of wildernesses. Solitude is good. But Satan loves to get us to isolation, where we separate ourselves from community of believers, the church. God doesn't want that. Satan loves that. Lastly, as we close, be full, led, and empowered by the Spirit, just as Jesus was. See, the battle between the Holy Spirit and the enemy, it is for your life, for your soul, and it's real. The enemy will use many things to captivate us, to swallow us up, to create an illusion, to desensitize us to the reality of the combat, to the battle that is going on every day for your soul. And so Jesus says, hey, listen, obey God. Don't be filled with the things of this world. Don't get drunk on this world. Don't get drunk on what everything that Satan puts before you and waste your life. But instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I think that just simply means to be filled by the Holy Spirit means to obey Jesus. To be led by the Holy Spirit means to follow Jesus. To be empowered by the Holy Spirit means to recognize I am weak, but Jesus is strong. And to let him be your source of strength. So I pray you're identified with Christ, the Son of God. And I pray you find times of solitude so that he can pour his word into you and to grow you and transform you. And then thirdly and lastly, that you would be filled, that you would obey Jesus, that you would be led, you'd follow him. You be empowered by him, recognize I am weak, but he is strong, and let him be your source of strength this week. Let's pray.